1: Hi there, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast team.
3: Hi,
4: Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Casper.
1: Hey, Casper and Vanessa.
4: Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
1: And I'm Casper Terkyle.
4: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, the Owl Post edition. Do you want to do that with me? It's an Owlpost edition. <laughs> it is
1: an Owlpost edition. <laughs> and we're really excited to have a special guest.
4: So this week we are joined by Sajal Patel, who runs a solo public interest law practice, and she does public defense for people below the poverty line. She advocates for gun safety. She does Title IX work with colleges. She is the mom of two amazing kids, Sonia and Serena, who I think both think that I do a better job with the 30-second recap. We're so excited. She's also a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and a devotee of Stephanie Paulsell, most importantly. (laughs) Sejal, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you both for having me. So we are just curious. So you come from this law background, and at a certain point, you decided to go to divinity school. And we are wondering, what happened? What made you go to divinity school?
1: Who goes to divinity school, right?
3: (laughs) Who's weird (laughs) enough to do that? Wounded
4: souls, I think, go to divinity school,
3: (laughs) at least in my case. So... I had been a lawyer at that point for 12 years, and just before I went to Divinity School, I tried, with three people, a federal terrorism case in Boston. And the case involved an individual who did a lot of uh, free speech-related things, but he didn't actually do anything. So we felt pretty good that we were going to win and expected not guilty verdicts, and he was found guilty of seven terrorism-related offenses and faced a life-in-prison sentence, Uh, thankfully not the death penalty. But he was sentenced to 17 and a half years in the United States penitentiary, a lot of which he spent in solitary, and it broke my heart. Uh, It's the first time in my professional career I've cried in court Mm. because I was so stunned by the verdict, um, as was my team. And we really thought he was innocent, Uh, so much so that I still remember the visceral reaction of being there and being surprised when the foreman read, guilty, seven times. And so I felt confused about what was I doing with my life? What does the justice system mean? What does freedom and national security mean? Mm. So wouldn't you go to divinity school then? Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's the kind of situation where you're confronted with new questions or or the answers that you used to trust in no longer holding up, which I think makes so much sense in this book as well. We see Harry and, and the others really learning to distrust some of the institutions that they're engaging And the criminal justice system is one. You know, we see Sirius, who is innocent, imprisoned for more than a decade and is really broken by it in some ways. I mean, he survives, right? He doesn't totally succumb to the dementors. But we see the way in which he internalizes guilt. We see in the ways in which he he loses all trust in institutions and just wants to wreak personal revenge by killing Pettigrew. I mean, does the story of Sirius in Azkaban resonate for you as someone who has worked in courtrooms and worked with people who've been through those kind of convictions?
3: So Sirius's situation really struck me in this book in particular, because prior to the case that I talked about, I litigated a case for a man in Boston— who was schizophrenic and bipolar and he pleaded guilty to something he didn't do uh, largely because I think with his mental illness and also he had a bad lawyer who just told him take the plea because you'll get a smaller sentence. He ended up going to jail for 10 years and then was a level three sex offender, which is the worst um, you know you have to put your picture up at the grocery stores and police stations and when he came out his mom always believed in his innocence as did he and the plight of a mentally ill person is terrible because they shuttle you from facility to facility. So you don't even have, not that being at Azkaban is such a warm and fuzzy feeling, but at least you do stay in one place. When you have any kind of a mental disorder, you get moved to different prisons. So that was his life. And I litigated his exoneration. And it was this really beautiful moment of a judge saying and clearing him. And what was interesting in the prisoner of Azkaban is while Lupin and Dumbledore, maybe, though we don't hear it explicitly. And Harry do appreciate the fact that Sirius didn't commit this crime. He's able to explain it and he's able to get that external validation. There is no systemic validation. He escapes, still known as a guilty criminal who's absconded and was supposed to have his soul sucked out of him by dementors. So he's still kind of a fugitive at the end of the story. And I wonder how that plays with his personality. Does he need that public sense of, I'm sorry, the apology from the institution, as opposed to the apology from some people he really cares about?
4: Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think, speaking of Dumbledore, what you make of the fact that Dumbledore does go around the law in this way. I feel like a lot of us are trying to figure out when to show up for marches with or without permits, how we can advocate within a system that we are concerned about the integrity of. So, you know, Dumbledore has a line at the end of Azkaban where he's like, I cannot make men see the truth. And so he decides to use Harry and Hermione to go around the law. As a lawyer, like, what do you do with that? Solve that.
3: <laughs> yeah, boy, I wish I wish I could. Well, and it's also interesting, uh, Vanessa, not only the, the portion that you cited to, but also at the very end of the book when Dumbledore is talking to Harry and he says, you saved an innocent man from a terrible fate. Mm. And Dumbledore enables him, you know, Harry and Hermione performing this extremely vigilante act of giving them more time and... One, helping Buckbeak escape the execution, and two, breaking Sirius out of this prison where he is also sentenced to die, right? Those two events, the, the kids are able to bust them out of, and so... I think that this is the point in the series, anyway, at book three, where we're getting this sort of delegitimization of the institution. Mm. You know, we don't know, do we trust Cornelius Fudge or not? What are his ulterior motives? Later, we're going to find out what happens to the Ministry of Magic. But to your point about sort of where we are in contemporary politics, it is a, a troubling question of... Do you protest legally or illegally? What does that mean? Um, Not so long in our history, there were moments where if citizens didn't speak up, all kinds of atrocities could have been made to be worse. Or, you know, all of Hannah Arendt's writings, like Eichmann in Jerusalem, something that I reread in Divinity School, you know, was all about what happens when evil becomes banal. So what's our responsibility to abide by a law, a legal system that we may personally disagree with? I have a lot of good
4: questions for you, but not
3: very many good answers. Yeah.
4: So speaking about those lessons, we have heard that you are, you know, a minor fan of the Niebuhr brothers. And so whenever we have anybody on the show, we love to hear from their expertise. So something we asked Scott Perlow when he did this episode last year was um, to like sort of make the, you know, 30 second pitch for Judaism. (laughs) And so we would love it. If you did sort of a 30-second recap of what you remember about the Niebuhr brothers so that we can share that with our listeners, is that something you're game for? It's like a nerd dream come true. <laughs> okay. So I have the timer ready. Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
3: It feels very different in
1: these shoes, right? right? It does. <laughs>
4: Everyone's right. so judgmental of how badly we do. Okay, uh-huh. I'll give you a 15-second warning uh-huh. and a 5-second warning. You got it.
1: All right, here we go. 30 seconds on the niebuhr brothers. 3, 2, one go.
3: Hindu girl walks into divinity school after doing a terrorism case and is convinced by the great professor Kay and Gaston that she needs to take a class about the Niebuhr brothers. Who are the Niebuhr brothers? I had absolutely no idea. I'm not even (laughs) Christian. Turns out that (laughs) Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama say that they were their favorite philosophers. They wrote about the period of social justice and ethics during the Great Depression and the Vietnam War. They talked about enemy making. They talked about making hasty decisions out of anger like the passage of the Patriot Act. They write about how conflict is inevitable. They have great quotes like, and this is Reinhold hold no perfect peace but settle on imperfect solutions that most nearly approximate (laughs) that was amazing (laughs) i got one more i got one more okay you're gonna give me like five more seconds yeah now i'm gonna say this one's slow because it's important Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination for injustice makes democracy necessary. I might change "man" with "woman" or "people," but you get the gist of the quote. And that's probably my favorite of my readings of of Reinhold Niebuhr. First of all, Sadrall, that was incredible. Like was- round of applause. <laughs> yes. Like higher. I mean, she
4: brings in her Hindu like I love a Hindu girl walks into divinity school. <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of the best joke ever.
1: What I love about that 30-second recap, Sachel, is is like the way in which an encounter with a theology or a history or an, an ecclesiology of a different tradition from your own ends up enriching your own practice, your own work, your own experience of life. You know, I think that's what I love about doing this podcast with Vanessa as well. It's like drawing on Jewish practices and traditions that are way outside my own experience, it makes my reading of this particular book and, yeah, just my whole experience richer. So thank you for shedding light on that. Oh,
3: (laughs) you're so welcome. That was fun.
4: Reinhold Niebuhr, he also did the Serenity Prayer, he right? He
3: did. You guys yeah. read that in an earlier episode, and it was a beautiful reading, Casper. Thank you. He was smart.
4: <laughs> Do you want to talk for a minute about your Hinduism? I know that we had a Hindu girl who went to divinity school on the podcast and made her talk about some Christian theologians. So, <laughs> so the funny thing is, this class, the reason I took it was because American
3: democracy is founded on Christian ethics, mm-hmm. and it's so important if you're studying law and ethics to understand. Christianity. And Stephanie Paulsell actually recommended a Bible for me to buy. I'm like, there's like a lot of Bibles on Amazon. So which one should I get? And she sent me the link for the right one. And (laughs) it wasn't until I got to divinity school that I realized how much of my life I didn't understand things because I grew up in a Hindu family. I don't understand Moby Dick. In a way, I thought I didn't understand a lot of Western art or a lot of Western literature, maybe even music, Mm. because and all these are all things that I studied in school, but all these other students that were studying the Bible had such a deeper understanding of what they were reading, and I didn't even know who's Job? Job? I mean, that's really what you think. You don't know these things. And so when I signed up for the Niebuhr class, I said to my professor, I saw the syllabus and I'm like, what is that? I don't understand. And then I went to the co-op and I looked at the books and I said, I'm going to withdraw from this class. There's no way I can take it. And what Professor Gaston said to me was, sagel there are ministers in training in that class that will help you with the Christian piece, and there is a lawyer in you, and you can help them understand the politics piece. And so she said, just trust me, it's worth it. And I did, and, I, and it was the one and only academic paper I will ever write in my life, but I'm glad I did it.
4: Yeah, that was when I took my intro to the New Testament class. That was when I found out that John the Baptist and John the Apostle are two different people. And the professor was like, I didn't know that that was a misconception. And I was like, I don't know why I would know that. I so remember this. I, ugh, I remember asking him about the crucifixion in the fourth grade and a teacher looking at me like I was from Mars. It's hard when you're raised outside of a dominant culture like that. Mm-hmm. to You don't even understand what you don't understand. Mm-hmm.
3: No. And I mean, look, my favorite story about that when I was in fourth grade, I had a friend whose last name was Lobel, which doesn't mean anything to me until now that I'm 42. But I gave her an Easter present. And because I thought don't all white people celebrate Easter? I had no idea that Easter was anything associated to Christianity. And her mom, she was Jewish, her mom thought that was the, absolutely the cutest and funniest thing. And I still, during Easter, when I see all the Hallmark cards, I still chuckle over the fact <laughs> that that was my first encounter with Judaism.
1: Sejal, <laughs> so, I have one final question for you, which is that drawing from your own religious history or family history, is there anything that you have thought about the Harry Potter books that maybe struck you in some way as resonant with your own Hindu heritage? Is is there something that's particularly Hindu about the Harry Potter books? And if there isn't, that is totally fine.
4: Yeah, because we have found, Casper and I will look at the same thing. He'll be like, that's so Christian. I'll say, that's so Jewish. And then we just had a listener call in who was like, no, guys, that's so Muslim. And we're like, <laughs> oh, okay. So...
3: Yeah, so I had to take this to family caucus because I'm like Hindu light, which means I grew up in the tradition, but my father was a farmer. Mm. Uh, He's a doctor now, but he was a farmer. And so the Hinduism that studied in divinity school is not the Hinduism that I grew up with. It's not textual. It's not academic. It's practiced, which is really different. What I found to be very similar, and this is actually credit to my children and my brother-in-law and the grandparents, Harry and Krishna have quite a few things in common with each mm-hmm. other which I only saw when we had this conversation uh, in both instances a powerful man tries to kill an infant because there's a prophecy that foretells their, their demise the infant then goes on to defeat the powerful man um, both are raised by surrogate parents where Krishna's family is loving and supportive of him but Harry's obviously is abusive um, neither of the two are aware of their sort of true importance in the world until they get older wow. um, they're both really not Really naughty. I mean, a lot of Hindu scriptures are just he's stealing butter and he's flirting with girls and um, so naughty, but powerful and they become leaders, right? I mean, it's it the Bhagavad Gita is Krishna having a conversation about, um, about the war. Of course, also Krishna's skin color is that purplish hue and Harry has the lightning scar. Mm. So lots of very interesting parallels there. My mind is blown.
1: Sejal, thank you so much for joining us. So grateful for the work you're doing and the stories that you've shared on the podcast today. We'll speak to you soon.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
4: So now is the time in our Owl Post episode in which we are going to listen to some voicemails. But we have a very special voicemail to start with today, which is a live voicemail from Sejal's two daughters, Sonia, who's 13, and Serena, who is 9. Ladies, take it away.
5: Hi, Casper and Vanessa. I'm Sonia, age 13. And I'm Serena, age 9. And we wanted to ask you a question about friendship. I was at art camp over the summer and my friend asked me if I was afraid of anything. I was scared to tell her I was afraid of dogs because I thought she might call me a scaredy cat and stop playing with me. Instead, she made me feel better by saying she was afraid of cats. It's hard to be afraid of dogs because a lot of my friends have dogs and they love them, so nobody understands why I'm afraid. When this girl told me she was afraid of cats, I didn't feel alone anymore. At the beginning of the school year, my advisor wanted me and my 10 classmates to bond more because most of us were in different friendship circles. Soon, she created an activity called a confession session. In a confession session, we sat in a circle and set everything on our minds. By the end of one of these sessions, we were all smiling through tears. After experiencing a confession session, I felt more comfortable to share my troubling thoughts and not have any doubts that these girls would stand by me. Similarly, Remus Lupin's past was extremely affected by becoming a werewolf. He was afraid that his friends would look at him and think about what he was, not who he was. But after he told his friends about his identity, they became anime guy every full moon to support him and make him feel like he mattered. So, our question is, what is it about a situation with a friend when it feels safe to share something with someone? How does this particularly affect Lupin or other characters in Harry Potter?
4: Thank you. We love your podcast. Serena, one of the things that I loved that you said is that your friend asked you if you were afraid of anything and you were afraid to tell her what you were afraid of. Mm -hmm. And I think that that speaks to the fact that being vulnerable is really scary. And I think that, Sonia, that gets to exactly what you were talking about, too. The power of the confession session is that You all were being held to the same standard of vulnerability, which created a sense of trust. And I think that that's what's so beautiful about all of the guys turning into Animagi is that they all become vulnerable in the same way in that moment by making themselves equal.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think we're told to kind of move through life like battleships to be hard and strong and powerful. And sometimes that's necessary. But in order to be able to connect with others, there has to be a softness and a willingness to potentially expose ourselves to being hurt. And I think that image of the physical transformation of the anime guy is actually really interesting because they don't have the full physical capacities that they do as young men, yet that's the thing that allows them to connect with Lupin, exactly as you said. So there's there's this powerful way of connecting through vulnerability that I think is such an important part of the books. And not just with those four friends. I think we see it more and more with Harry, you know, as he feels the pressure to be strong and the chosen one and the one who's going to have all the answers and lead. And yet the times when he most connects with Hermione and Ron is when he acknowledges that he doesn't know it all and that he does need help. So thank you for that question. I think it's very insightful.
4: Absolutely.
1: Also, I don't like dogs, so I'm with you.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I also wonder, is this um, question of feeling safe, does it pertain to anyone else in Harry Potter that that comes to mind?
4: I mean, I think I was thinking about how Hermione only becomes friends with the boys when her physical safety is at risk with the troll in book one, right? So I think that people often bond, right? Like war creates the strongest friendships, right? When your life is at stake or even just, you know, in more mundane terms, like. Going to sleepaway camp or going on a big hike, right? When you are out of your element where your creature comforts are near you, I think stronger friendships can be created more quickly. So I think safety and friendship are absolutely intertwined. Thank you so
1: much, girls. We're so glad you you were with us. And say thanks again to your mom for making it all happen. Our second voicemail is from Laura Castleman, who's commenting on Chapter 21, Hermione's Secret, which we read through the theme of crisis.
6: Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name's Laura. I live in White Plains, New York, and I absolutely adore the podcast. For this week, thinking about the theme of crisis, what that first made me think of was my career. Uh, So I have a master's in mental health counseling, and I specifically focus on working with survivors of trauma, often specifically survivors of sexual trauma. I also am in this field in part because I myself am a survivor of sexual trauma, and so really a lot of my life I think about through that lens. When um, I was reading the chapter with that theme in mind of crisis, it really struck me how one of the things that is going on here is that Hermione and Harry, using the time turner, are returning back to a moment of crisis to revisit it and in a certain way fix it. Now, of course, as a therapist, I can't bring people back to actual moments in time and undo things that have happened to them. But a lot of what I do and a lot of what trauma therapists do is help people in some way return back to that moment of crisis or that moment of trauma and reframe it or place it in their life's narrative in a different way. So, Often what we're doing is taking people back, specifically people who experience sexual trauma and many kinds of trauma, can often feel guilt, despite the fact that, of course, what happens to somebody in that situation is not their fault. And so I thought about how, you know, when they go back and they rescue Buckbeak and then Sirius, of course, they don't undo the fact that Sirius's best friends were killed. They don't undo the fact that the world largely sees him as guilty, but they do give him this gift of knowing that these two people, that Harry and Hermione, see that he is innocent and they don't blame him for what happened. And I just thought there was a really strong metaphor or comparison there with trauma work. And so I just wanted to share that perspective and also to offer a blessing for serious and for all survivors of a crisis or a trauma who struggle um, with seeing themselves as guilty when truly they bear no responsibility for what happened.
1: Laura, I've always been down on the time turner and you have just totally blown my mind. That is so powerful and I just love this voicemail and I am so both heartened and inspired and moved by the way that you bring the time turner into your work experience and your own experience. I am just floored by that idea of recreating a narrative and even if we can't change the actual events that happened, changing our perspective on it, changing our understanding of our own role in it, just the beautiful healing work that you illustrated and that may be the time to illustrate something that I know a lot of fans have trouble with I think you've just given a depth of meaning which is astonishingly beautiful thank you and thank you for the work you do
4: our next voicemail is from Jamie Weisbach
2: hi I'm Jamie I live in Chicago and I wanted to respond to your recent episode on isolation um, and specifically the bit where you talked about how the Wamping Willow had been planted specifically for Lupin before he came to Hogwarts. And it made me think about an event in my life and how that related to your theme of isolation. So I'm transgender and when I first went to college, I was one of the first openly transgender students to go to that school. And I contacted the administration before I came to ask a couple questions about various things I needed relating to that. And they responded very positively. They were really accommodating. And unbeknownst to me, they decided that because none of the freshman dorms had gender-neutral bathrooms, that they were going to put a gender-neutral bathroom in one of the freshman dorms on the floor that I would be living on. That way, I'd be living on a floor with a gender-neutral bathroom. And they didn't tell me they did this. And I didn't ask them to do this. And I didn't know that I'd done it. In fact, I didn't think anything was odd at all. I just assumed that other freshman floors had bathrooms or maybe that maybe every, every, every couple dorms did or something. I didn't really think it was that unusual. I thought maybe it was just a, a coincidence and that um, there happened to be one freshman floor that had a gender-neutral bathroom and they decided to put me there. But I had no idea that they'd put it in there just for me. And I found out about midway through my freshman year that this had actually been done for my sake. And I just felt terrible. Like I felt so bad. Like I found out and I like ended the conversation that I was having and I like went back to my room and I like cried. And I thought a lot afterwards about why it was that I felt so bad because at the time I had no idea why this felt so terrible. I just knew that it felt terrible. And I think partially I felt terrible because I felt like they'd done this incredible, kind, thoughtful thing for me, and I didn't even know who to thank or like how to be grateful to like an institution rather than to a specific person because I didn't know whose responsibility it had been, but I think really what felt worst was this sense of isolation that it made me feel that like If I was someone that they had to like remodel the bathrooms on my floor just so I could live there, like what kind of freak was I, right? Like I was such a freak that they had to like build new bathrooms in a building before they would let me live in that building. Um, and I think maybe had I asked for it or had they talked to me about it beforehand, I would have felt less weird. But just the sense of, um, being so out of the ordinary that they had to like rearrange the building for my sake made me feel so isolated and lonely and freaky. Um, and so that just made me think about what Remus Lupin must've felt like when they planted the Whomping Willow for him, if he knew they did it for him or if maybe they told him like, Oh, we just have this tree here and we can use it to help you. And just how he would have felt that they had to like, um you know, remodel, the campus grounds in order to accommodate him. Thank you.
4: Jamie, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. I completely empathize with your sense of feeling isolated and like you must not belong in a building that has to be changed in order to fit you. But just as someone who believes that most infrastructures have been built in ways that oppress large sections of society. I, I would just like to offer a reframing that you gave your school the opportunity to like reshape itself in a way that it should be. And it sucks that it was you that had to break through that barrier. But I just think it's fantastic also that Your sheer presence was so spectacular that it had to change the physical structure of a building. And I mean, and more importantly, I'm just so sorry that you felt so isolated in that moment. That's a really hard and complicated thing. And thank you so much for sharing that beautiful story with us.
1: Our next voicemail is from Anne Phelps.
0: Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. This is a message from Anne Phelps in Jackson, Mississippi. I just wanted to say I am particularly taken with the various spiritual practices that y'all explore, and I learn so much about my own spirituality each time I partake in these practices alongside you. Most of my life's work has been in the arena of liturgical and sacred music, and so I thought it could be fun to explore an example of the spiritual practice of chant. This is a tradition that has been used for millennia by countless religions to explore sacred texts and to connect those intellectual ideas with emotional experiences. And since music has that unique ability to do that so readily, um, I've applied that principle to a section of Harry Potter. I asked a few friends to help me while I'm at a liturgy conference this week, um, and I set an abridged version of the tale of the three brothers to a traditional Anglican chant tone. In particular, we wanted to highlight how changes in music can alter the way that we encounter texts. One of the ways that Western ears most readily hear differences in musical moods, regardless of their musical training, is through major and minor keys, as we call them. So major keys sound to Westerners really hopeful or promising or happy, while minor keys tend to sound more mysterious or spooky or sad. So we set most of the chant in a minor key to convey that mysterious nature of of the old tale, but we occasionally slip into the the major uh, in some of the more future-oriented or hopeful moments. So here it is. uh, Myself on soprano, Suzanne Daniel on alto and piano, John Wesley Hodges on tenor, and Robert Totten on bass, um, who I have to brag, uh, came together with me and recorded this in, in a few minutes because they're all total rock stars. And for any fellow musicians out there, this 19th century psalm tone attributed to Jay Harrison can be found on page S275 of the the hymnal 1982 uh, with improvised solo sections.
1: Thank you so much, Anne. And like we have listened to it. We actually want to share it with you as we do our credits at the end of this show. It is stunningly beautiful. And I think the way in which you've combined the text with the harmonies are so striking. I had never really thought about chant in this way. You've just opened up a whole new set of spiritual practices. So thank you. you've been listening to harry potter and the sacred text season four the goblet of fire my favorite book starts on october 3rd and if you're local to boston remember that the local classes kick off on september 27th please follow us on social media twitter instagram tumblr and facebook leave us a review on itunes and send us one of these fabulous voicemails next week we'll broadcast our live show from dc that we did this summer this episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Vanessa Sulton, and me, Kasper Kyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm.
4: This week, we would like to thank everybody who sent in our voicemails, Sejal Patel and her beautiful daughters, Serena and Sonia. We'd like to thank our social media manager, Harshie Hedegay, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Paulsell.
1: Bye, everyone. I thought you were going to say, I got you an invisible cake to (laughs) repay you.
4: I got you. You don't have to get me a cake from two seasons ago.
1: (laughs) We still get emails. Where is the cake? Truth for cake. (laughs) We have cake truthers, everyone.
4: (laughs) Every time we get one of those emails, it makes me happy. (laughs)